But this young attorney, he's more of an upstart. It's almost like he's trying to provoke me, showing me the, the autopsy pictures. Well, if you didn't do it, we can get the gun tested. And that's when dawned on me. I latched on that and I haven't let go of that even now. I was like, you can test the gun? Snow Files, Season 2, Episode 31, Ballistics, Part 1, The Gospel According to Ganell, with Patrick Persley. The mission of the Snow Files podcast is to expose the misconduct of the state's attorney's office under Charles Renard. It is not our intention in any way to disparage the current state's attorney's office or the Bloomington Police Department. In part one of the Snow Files Ballistics episodes, we interviewed Patrick Persley, an Illinois exoneree who fought for 27 years to get ballistics tested, in his case, with new technologies. In June of 1993, Andrew Asher and his girlfriend, Becky George, were sitting in a parked car in Rockford, Illinois, when they were robbed at gunpoint from a masked man. George stated that while Asher dug for his wallet, and George offered $60 from her purse, she heard two gunshots, and as Asher slumped down, the robber fled on foot. Two shell casings and two bullets were recovered. After a Crime Stoppers tip from Marvin Windham, police searched Samantha Crabtree's apartment while taking her into the station for questioning, and retrieved a 9mm pistol. Crabtree was Patrick's girlfriend. While at the station, Crabtree made incriminating statements against Patrick. Six days later, 
Wyndham again called Crime Stoppers and gave a statement to police. Patrick was subsequently arrested. In April of 1993, at trial, Crabtree recanted her statement and said she was threatened by police that her children would be taken away from her if she did not cooperate. She went on to say that Patrick was with her at home the night of the crime. Crabtree stated that she was two months pregnant during the interrogation and detectives kept yelling at her. One even declared, I can make it so you don't see your children until they're 40. She stated she would have stated anything to get out of there to go home to her children. During cross-examination, Wyndham also admitted to receiving $2,650 from Crime Stoppers in reward money for his information. There were several witnesses that testified on behalf of the defense, either stating that Patrick was with them during the time or that the person they saw leaving the crime scene did not match Patrick's description. However, the defense ballistics expert testified that he was unable to make a conclusive identification that the bullets from the crime scene were fired from Crabtree's gun. Finally, the linchpin in the case was one Illinois state ballistics expert, Daniel Gunnell, who testified that he examined the gun, bullets and casings and evidence, and concluded that the gun was a match to exclusion of all others. The headline in the local paper the next day was, The Gospel According to Gunnell. On April 28, 1994, the jury convicted Patrick of first-degree murder, and he was sentenced to life in prison without parole. Patrick was sent to Stateville Prison, and that's where he would remain for the next 27 years, fighting to prove his innocence, eventually successfully getting ballistics testing included in the Illinois Post-Conviction Act. Patrick eventually was able to get the ballistics reviewed and presented two experts in an evidentiary hearing that excluded Crabtree's gun as the murder weapon. Further, Gunnell testified that the result of his re-examination was inconclusive. Patrick was granted a new trial. During preparation for the new trial, Patrick discovered a statement made 18 months earlier from the victim's mother, Lois Asher, to the prosecution in which Miss Asher said a detective told her, not long after Patrick was convicted in 1994, that the actual murder weapon could not be found so officers planted the gun that was said to be the murder weapon. The prosecutor claimed he didn't consider the statement credible at the time, so he did not disclose. On January 16, 2019, Patrick was found not guilty of all charges, and in February 2021, Judge McGraw, who presided over Patrick's appeals and bench trial, granted Patrick a certificate of innocence. So Jamie wanted me to ask you, do you remember how fucking hot it is in Stateville? <laughs> oh my God, please. Yes, I do. I'm in Stateville every day. There's not one day that I don't have a Stateville or Stateville references. I'm very much still there. That's flashbacks. That's that's PTSD shit, Patrick. Yeah. Uh, tr- trigger alert, trigger alert. <laughs> It's real. It's very real. And it's stifling hot. Plus, I think, uh, you know, if you're not working in the kitchen or something like that, or you don't know the police and you don't have no perks, you might get a cup of ice in the afternoon and a cup of ice in the evening. Usually the ice cream comes out in the middle of the wintertime also. So don't look forward to those type of perks. I told him you post all the time about, you know, the weather. Oh, they're turning on the heat now, or they're turning off the heat now. (laughs) Yeah, because most of the people that actually associate with, associate with are exonerees. So you're still very much in tune. You know, I still get calls. They played a game with my federal case where all the phone calls I made from my jail cell were turned over to the state, including the calls to my lawyer. Anyone that knows me or my case knows I fought my entire case basically on a phone. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. And you and anyone that knows Stateville knows that you can't get but maybe one legal call a month, 20 minutes. Yeah. And if you're trying to find lawyers or deal with lawyers, talk to lawyers, 
proceed, uh, help develop the case. Man, you are, I mean, especially my case, my case was a precedent and I was on phone every day, probably twice a day, my last few years before I got out. So I'm sure they had fun with that. You got to hear us, me and my lawyers arguing and, but also um, they get an unfair advantage. So they were able to use the phone calls against you? They can't use them against me because there's nothing there. You know, if there was something there, they were just able to get it. But if there was something there and they especially zeroed in on the calls with my lawyers, like lawyers from General Block and me are manipulating a case on a jail line. It's not too far fetched if you really think about that Taiwan Anderson case, those three guys out of Rockford. You know, you got a prosecutor that's course and a witness on a jail phone. I think the witness was in Danville and wasn't turned over to the 11th hour just before trial and couldn't get a continuance. And they got a new trial based on that was one of the issues. Why don't you just start with how you know Jamie? What, what do you know of Jamie? I met Jamie while he was working in the kitchen in Stateville. So over the years, the relationship developed. I seen was a stand-up dude. You can't say there's a lot of white dudes running around Stateville. And you definitely can't say there's a lot of stand a lot of stand-up white dudes who can work in the kitchen with the roughest of them and be in the mix, even work on the line where you have, like right now, you can imagine 1,800 people coming into a hot-ass chow hall and wanting another scoop of something or other, and you can't give them but uh, one dip, no lip. He was not only unimpressed, he wasn't afraid of nobody. You could tell he wasn't afraid because he looked bored. He looked <laughs> bored. <laughs> he was. He looked perturbed and bored. You know what I mean? He did. So you couldn't definitely couldn't bother him, be bothering him. What was bothering him is being locked up and having to uh, work in the damn Stateville mess hall. <laughs> <laughs> he always tells a story, though, about when he first got to Stateville. He just kind of sat at your door trying to get information about how to fight his case. Yeah. When he moved into my cell house. Yes, he did. Because. You know, as a worker, they go take a shower and they're not locked up to a certain time. And the more lazy the officer is, the longer he takes to come open the door on eight or 10 gallery where I was. So, yeah, that's how I got exposed to his case. Deep conversations about it, develop the basic understanding and continue on outside with you. You know, of course, I can never do what needs to be done because I suck at tech, but I've done events with you in support of him. And it's just, his case is an amazing case. And it's just, it sucks because the need for help outstrips the availability of health and resources out here. That is a real lopsided variable. That's a perfect way to put it because it really is. And I love how you mentioned that the state has all of the advantages. I mean, they can get anything at any time. I mean, we're fighting right now. We're going to have a hearing, a whole hearing on uh, documents that we found discovered because I don't know how many, a couple of years ago, uh, a judge ordered documents to be turned over, subpoenaed the ISP and the BPD to turn over documents so we could get forensics documents. And it turns out there's like 8,000 documents that he's never seen. That's always fun. That's, that's amazing. And in my case, out of Rockford, when it, it came out that the detectives had bragged to the victim's mother about planting a gun. I know you know the story of putting the gun in the evidence box and she made the whole arm motion. And my judge, he got aggravated. He ordered every email with my name on it to be tendered and just on one document dump, just one of many, uh, it was 21,000 emails dumped in one day, the amount of information that they retain. And of course, knowledge is power, right? So that is really it. When they keep you in the dark, you know, they're not going to provide you the facts to uh, shoot holes in their career. And it's a shame because they're supposed to be public servants, but we know uh, the hubris of power and our state officials can't do what the hell they want to do. There's a whole long laundry list of state officials and prosecutors doing what the hell they want to do. 
and everybody thinks that, oh, these prosecutors, that they stand up for victims of crime. They're warriors. and They watch and, Law and Order doing cases or working on cases. You would be surprised that that is one of the key questions during voir dire where the prosecutor during the peremptory strike portion is asking these potential jurors, well, you know, this is nothing like law and order. And of course, at that time, the prospective juror will voice their opinion. Well, yeah, well, I, I watch law and order and you no, know, I know the difference. Everybody knows the difference, but right. the reality of the situation is people are people. There's good and bad everywhere. And when you have power that is unchecked, and fueled with taxpayer money, and you have political careers at risk, who's guarding the hen house? That's the bottom line on it. It's just the hubris of power. People blindly think that, you know, that that doesn't happen. They think uh, cases like yours and, and Jamie's and the West Memphis Three and Rodney Reed and, uh, you know, all of these cases are anomalies. They well, just made mistakes. They, of course, you know, it, it was just one bad person. But, you know, you can have one fucking detective on 500 cases yep. who built up evidence and put all of these people away for all of that time, years and years and years. And it has an effect on that person and every single person in their family. And every single person that cares about them, that's thousands of people, hundreds of thousands of people that that affects that one person. And the problem is, is the whole fucking police department falls in line and the state's attorneys fall in line. So nobody's questioning it along the way. That's the frustrating part about it. It takes balls to stand up and say, you know what, I, I I'm not going to go along with this. This is messed up. Yeah. And then then when you do, when the officer does come forward and admit his malfeasance and corruption and framing people, often that's ridiculed and marginalized. In the case, Taiwan Anderson case, an officer literally admitted in news conferences and in open court under oath that he was framing people. And the same judge, my judge, he actually told him during the hearing. And I read it in the transcripts. I wasn't there, of course. It's like 2015 or something. I hadn't got out yet. But I don't believe you. You know, I don't find you to be credible. And here it is. This officer is admitting his wrongdoing. He's admitting, you know, not just framing people. But actually, I think he was having sex with a confidential informant. Numerous drug cases, right? You could imagine a closed playing field like Rockford. Uh, Jamie goes through that same thing with Bloomington. These little small towns with this entrenched power structure, it is resistant to change. You know, the way social media and the media is everything set up, an officer can come forward and say this and he'll get his few, you know, 15 minutes and maybe a few cases will be overturned, but the system finds a way to write itself, to correct the error, at least within a political perspective in the public eye. And the public basically suffers from ADHD. We're on to the next subject. And there's still all these people that are still like Detective Gilbert in Chicago. This guy touched hundreds of cases. You know, he's a known dirtbag. As early as 1998, I was working on Burge cases. And these, you know, I snuck and got on the computer in the law library and uh, they had the CD-ROM tree. I figured out how to, how to run it. And just all these people were making the same claims against the same handful of detectives. And it took another 15, 20 years before it even broke free. But this is where I, I give congratulations to you because Chicago independent media is powerful. You know, it's powerful. And they brought that down. It wasn't the families. The families helped, but it was only when the media got involved you know, the Maurice Posley's and all that, that it became mainstream and wide known and then it had to be fixed to a degree. But Rockford or Bloomington, these places, the media is pretty much playing footsie with the, with the state under the table every day, all day, because they grant them access to a narrative and to the courtroom. When I try to have my own media come into my case, Kristen Heineken never made it in with cameras. 
You know what I mean? She never could get yeah. permission. It was always something. And so information it always comes back to information. That's why I really, you know, salute you. And man, you, you've been going at it a long time to get Jamie's case up there. You know, we still got a long way to go. I mean, yeah. it's, it's, it's hard. And one thing about the media that I just think is so interesting is uh, I'm sure that you saw the difference, right? I mean, how many times you can look back on your Facebook and see events we put out. Patrick Perlis, yep. Patrick's hearing, Patrick's hearing, please come, please show up, you know, and it was, uh, you know, Michelle. <laughs> you <laughs> know, ignored. every right. time until you have, until right. you get exonerated or right. until the you tipping get free. Point. And there's what, a tipping point. But what you need is that help before. Of course. That's when of you course. need the help. One of my lawyers, Andrew Vale, just won an award with the Bar Association. And he invited me and Michelle. And we were sitting up in the Hilton's first, first event of this year. And we're sitting at his table. And he gets up to speak. And he actually mentioned me. I get this rounding, uh, rousing round of applause right. from judges, prosecutors, and lawyers. Now, ordinarily, right, someone, you know, might be feeling good and, you know, the ad- public adulation, I've made it. But in the back of my head, I'm thinking, these are the same cocksuckers who used to ignore my letters, deny my petitions. Um, you file complaints, you know, against one attorney, goes to another attorney through the ARDC. Yes. Right? And, and here it is, you know, here it is, you know, God bless them for the good things they do. But when I was behind bars, I had I had very little good to say about any attorney. I had nothing good to say about a prosecutor. I had nothing good to say about a judge. You know what I'm saying? And the media. And, and, and you oh know, because God, they you know. need to be putting your case out. Yeah. They ignore you until you get until you create your own momentum. And that's when, like, we got Associated Press. You know, here it is. My story goes all the way to Ireland. It's in New York Times, Washington Post. You know, it's all what when I'm those 15, 20 years when I'm writing letters, everyone's ignoring. When I was sending letters to Chicago media that they were killing people in segregation in Stateville, they were ignoring little murders, like literally officers killing inmates or torture inmates was ignored. Just, just completely just wrote off crackpot conspiracy theory. Throw that over there in that pile over there. That's why I'm very much out here trying to be on my thing as far as speaking and speaking effectively, right? You know, I'm, I'm a little bit more professional when I got my suit on. You got me after hours. This is me and you. You know, I, I, I'm thinking that your uh, podcast might be a little blue so I can be a little bit more randy, <laughs> but it is. Truly, the media's responsibility to carry these stories because these stories are life and death. You know, they're not just careers and status quo. That's how people look at. Well, uh, you know, that prosecutor he he's running again, and he did this, and he did that. He looks great in suit, and great on camera, and he's let us in the courtroom and butters our bread. Well, that's not independent media. That's state proxy. Can you give us a little background on your case as it pertains to ballistic and yes. how, how it came about that you were able to get the Illinois Post-Conviction Act changed to include ballistic testing? It was a rare alignment. That's a miracle, a miracle in of itself. As far as my case, in 1993, I was arrested for a murder I didn't do. There's some type of hoodoo as far as either police plant a gun, playing with ballistics, doing something, right? No one knows exactly sure because it's so long ago, right? But, you know, they had the nerve to actually brag to the victim's mother. We couldn't find the gun that killed your son, so we put Patrick's gun in the box. And when her and her husband asked, do you, do you have the right person? I said, well, we got one anyway, or we got him anyway. Some along those lines. And she gave that story to two state's attorneys investigators. However, she didn't give that story to us. And another prosecutor sat on it for a full two years, year and a half, while they tried to prevent me to, from getting a new trial based on um, new ballistics evidence. 
So in my case, the victim and Andrew Asher was killed with two shots. They claimed that the bullets matched a gun from my house, which I knew was hogwash. I was home with my, it's like my son's birthday, you know, the week before he comes from out of town. I got him a chemistry set. And thankfully, these dates were recorded or were kind of historic. So it's like if it had fell on a random day, how do you account for your time and place, right? You know, it's not like today with all this technology and cameras that can pretty much debunk a case and give you a strong alibi. So I went to trial and going to trial, you know, I got an old attorney and young attorney. It's the young attorney's first capital case. Even though Rockford is this closed system, it's like it's very, very much in its own lane, its own game. But this young attorney, he's more of an upstart. It's almost like he's trying, you know, like provoke me. It's like showing me the pictures, the autopsy pictures. Is Well, if you didn't do it, you know, we can get the gun tested. And that's when dawned on me. I latched on that and haven't let go of that even now. I was like, you can test the gun, you know, and that is a huge problem where attorneys do not provide that type of information. So the state will put on ballistic expert and you have no rebuttal. You have no expert witness. And so, of course, the state has proved its case and you have not proved anything or disproved anything. And they went to get an independent lab, Primar International. And they tested the gun three times. This was a retired police officer and his son. And as it turned out, as we go into my trial, you know, they had looked at the gun like three times. They couldn't find the match. And they took photographs, old analog photographs, which you could clearly see. Yeah, there was some resemblance, but it just didn't match. It didn't line up. And so when we went to trial, my experts First, my attorneys made a mistake. They put on the young expert instead of the father. His son didn't have the experience that the father did, being an ex-Chicago police officer and all these years of ballistics. But they were also lived next door to Dan Gunnell. They had land and hunted together. My expert actually, he almost started crying on the stand. He started breathing heavy in the mic, like... You know, he's breathing heavy. He said, like, this type of thing could cause a family feud. He absolutely saw you. So instead of saying, no, it's it's a nine match, he just saying, well, it's inconclusive. Because as I learned, law has this, this vague area that don't really mean anything. But here it is. This lab got $1,500 for each time they looked at the gun. We're talking $4,500. You can't come to court with a definitive but I, of course, you know, me being me and Desperado, right? I latched on to that. And I, I've just walked around for the next 15 years and say, hey, he said the gun didn't match, which to me was what he said. I got the ballistic photos. It took me years and years. You want to talk about trying to get information just to get the ballistic photos. My own evidence was taken out of the record on appeal. And if you look at any appellate record, there's no mention of ballistic pictures ever until later on, much, much later on. But I've been crying about them from the direct appeal all the way through. Even federal court, when I was in the habeas corpus, I tried to have the clerk uh, impound those photos. And instead, the federal judge made a whole new theory of the case and just made that the record instead of just going to get the ballistic photos. But they were ultimately a huge step for me to get someone to listen to me once I was able to get them about the year 2001, 2002, when I had asked for the gun test originally with IBIS the first time when I asked for it. Tell me a little bit about the state's expert. Didn't they say definitively? Oh, yeah. That, yeah, so, that it matched and, and was this what, yeah. a jury trial, correct? Yeah, it's a jury trial. So this guy, he uh, he says the gun matches to the exclusion of all other weapons in the world. About 20 years later, I get a, I get a letter from DOJ. You know, you can't even 
testify like that. A ballistic expert came to say no stuff like that. Uh, he also went out of his way to discredit my ballistic photos. Um, he said, we don't use ballistic photography. But later on, I learned that they had cameras attached to their stereoscopes. And he, he actually went to school for ballistic photography. But the Illinois State Police procedures as an agency says we don't use them, even though they can use them. So my expert being the junior witness, he's the senior witness, more experienced. He works for a state agency. He's more believed to the extent when he said that the newspaper, Rockford Register Star, put in big, bold print the gospel according to Gunnell. You want to talk about law and order ripped from the headlines. Literally, the gospel. So this becomes the linchpin in my case, even though once I got found guilty, once everything came out, like the media, they were still had some interest in. They reported this variance in the evidence. And there was people out circulating petitions in the community and people protest for me to get a new trial. But of course, once you're sent to Menard 500 miles away from Winnebago County, you know, and you're no longer in the news cycle, public interest falls off. I guess that's what one of the scariest things is. And uh, I know when you were inside, me and Michelle used to talk about this all the time. You get this ramp up for the moment, you know, and you have to. It's a wave. You have to seize. You have to seize on it. But it's, it's so difficult to keep people interested in your case because it takes and it shouldn't, but it takes so many years. And you know, it's so frustrating when you have to deal with that. And you're always afraid. Everybody's going to drop off. Nobody's going to be with me anymore. Nobody's going to, you know, it's just so frustrating. But yeah, it's a very lonely road. It's a very lonely road. Very much so. I know Jamie's going through that right now a lot. He sounds so anxious. It's when you're in court. And I remember talking to you when you were in court. Oh my God. You I were was just, jumping out my skin. Exactly. Because you never know when it's going to be the time, when it's going to be the right time. But everything about that time, you know, I was just like, Michelle, he's, he's going to get out. He's going to get out They're They're delaying, they're delaying, they're delaying, you know, lame excuses and the judge is getting pissed off. Yeah, it just takes time because delay, delay is the only true weapon they have. But also a huge inequity in the whole situation is that, you know, here, here it is. My claim was the same claim before I had got my attorneys. Only difference was now that I have an attorney's, you see. So it's like this, this pro se gets no play. But wasn't that because you took action? Yeah, I I did. But the same request for ballistic testing, Jenner and Block, that's old money. They were able to go toe to toe with Winnebago County. A lot of people get attorneys that don't have the resources. As a matter of fact, Northwestern took my case and basically got Jenner and Block to work on it because Jenner and Block had the deeper pockets and could could go toe to toe economically. They spent four point five million in in billing hours over ten years to get me out. And a lot of people, they especially the inmate Jamie's a little different. Even though he's impatient now, he has seen people come and go. He also knows that when it breaks, it can break quick. But he also realizes if you don't have a strong enough vehicle or a strong enough like lawyers that are strong enough to break through that state enclave, you're not going to penetrate. And so it's a lot of variables that really are a disservice to those still behind bars. Uh, there should be independent taxpayer, independent watchdog groups that take on these credible claims, actual innocence. And it should have nothing to do with politics. And there should be oversight. There has to be oversight. And I'm telling you, I wrote thousands of letters to attorneys. General Block told me no three times. Northwestern told me no three times. I kept writing them like they were my baby mama. I just kept writing them. I was not, I was never going to give up because 
once I understood that it didn't matter what I knew or thought I knew as far as going to the jailhouse law library or my little certificates in the mail or whatever, that does not amount to piddly when compared to the resources of the state. I just come to understand these people have careers. They go home every night. Our urgency is to go home. So that urgency is never, you're never going to get the energy that you, you know, yeah. even as a loved one, you, you, you already know, like yourself, just helping Jamie or like Michelle, you used to see how I was in prison. Like I'm a field marshal in Napoleon's army. Join us on our journey to free Jamie Snow by becoming a member of the Snow Files Patreon team for a flat rate of five bucks a month or set your own monthly rate. All supporters will receive a Snowfiles wristband and a shout-out by Jamie on the Snowfiles podcast. Just visit snowfiles.net and click on the Join Our Patreon button. What people don't understand is, like, prison is hell. It is literally like a little hell universe. And the worst part about it is, it's like Groundhog Day. You know, you're living the same day every damn day. It's just varying degrees of how bad will today be. I call it Groundhog Day meets colors myself. But, you know, <laughs> remember Rabbit? <laughs> rabbit was high on PCP trying to have sex with the stuffed, stuffed rabbit in the, before Sean Penn caught him, right? You got all these people that are basically, uh, a lot of people are just there and part of the environment and the culture and prison has its own gravity. And then the people that are trying to help us while in prison, they have their lives, they have their priorities, they have their bills. And as you know, back then, a phone call back then while I was still locked up was would cost you your uh, next born child. You know what I mean? Yeah, so it's like 10, bu- <laughs> 10 bucks for <laughs> 10 uh, bucks. half an hour. Yeah. So the way it depletes the energy, the, I, I have to really limit how many people I talk to from prison on any given time, not just because of the state getting my phone calls to be used against me in my lawsuit, but because the energy of of the crying out and the need for help. And you know, like, man, look, these people ain't gave me a dime. Everything I'm doing is all hustle. And half the time, I don't even know how my bill's going to get made. You know what I mean? Like people don't even even understand that. So, Mm -hmm. It was only when I got out here that I really understand just how unreasonable I was as a person towards Michelle trying to get her to do something which she had no knowledge of, even though she did a great job and you did a great job helping her. Right. But the reality of the situation is the person in prison, they don't get that. They understand like how just an hour or two just could get ate up in just running errands. But yeah. for the person, when you're sitting on inside trying to direct traffic to the real world, it is like when I came out here, you already know how hard it is and was for me to do all things kid culture, especially yeah. while on pretrial, going through all these issues with the back. By the grace of the creator, I feel I prevailed. Right. You know, I'm still free, but I made my mind up. I said, I'm not I'm not coming back to jail. I'm done. I'm done hustling. I'm done. I'm going to do this kid culture stuff and the speaking stuff. And by the grace of God, it's still it's still going. You know, we just got a nice little donation and about to do some contests and probably a thousand dollar giveaways. Right. But I had to learn coming from in there to out here trying to do the stuff myself, just how hard y'all have it. The people that support, you know, because you have your own lives, then you have this emotional tie to someone and you see they're in a trap and they're suffering and you want to ease that suffering, but you need help. You can't open the cage yourself. And the people who you need help from, most of the time, they're going to be on bullshit in one form or another because you're at their leisure, you know? And most defendants do not have a mind like Jamie or myself that learn their case themselves. You see what I'm saying? There was cases, a ballistic case. He was a Cambodian guy and they switched the gun out. And so once he put in for the gun testing, they denied the gun testing. But I tried to educate him like, when you go on appeal, don't let the appellate 
defender take these issues out. And he sure enough did. Let him gut, gut his post. How did it come about that you were able to get Illinois Post-Conviction Act changed to include ballistics testing? I was in Stateville. And they were executing people left and right. And I remember just basically feeling like that could have been me. You know, I was sitting in a day room about 12 at night in G-Dorm and one of the um, corners trucks that was leaving the institution. I got a job in the law library and I saw a newspaper article April 21st, I believe, 2000, where the Illinois State Police was going to start using um, IBIS, the Integrated Ballistic Identification System. And I just knew instantly that was it. There was ballistic photos. I felt that IBIS was nothing but glorified picture taker, digital, digital photography. And I felt that that would take the confirmational bias out of the equation. So I asked for this gun testing in the year 2000 and I was denied because at the time, Illinois only allowed for DNA testing. And they, the appellate right. court in 2002 kind of sent me down a rabbit hole. The law would have to be amended. So of course, you know, the idealist part of me, I'm writing all these letters to legislators and they're all being largely ignored. About 2006, I had wrote all these letters. I filed lawsuits. I got bounced out of federal court. I filed multiple petitions. I was done. You know, all my appeals were exhausted and I had took a correspondence class. I got a grant for like $3,600 from a Muslim chaplain. And I used that to take correspondence classes with the Paralegal Institute. And I learned about administrative law. It just basically gave me a, a new arsenal or method of attack. So I started attacking within the agency and that didn't work. And so as I, I was saying about 2006, I was just going to the chow hall and I was wearing some prayer beads that the um, chaplain had got me. And the warden, this, you know, this country fellow, Terry McCann, got me. You know, he's he's from the South. You know, he struck fear in all brown people at Stateville, basically, including officers. And he's like, what are those? And I'm like, these are prayer beads, sir. And he's like, you allowed to have them? Yes, sir. And he just saw I was being a smart ass. And we were in chow hall. And he told me he didn't like my attitude. I, I you know, like a, you know, jackass I am. I said. You know, we don't like your attitude either, sir. You brought much misery and suffering to the land. That got me six months in SAG. While in SAG, I'm not in population. In population, I was working on cases all the time in SAG. I was still working on cases to support myself, but I had a lot more time on my hands, you know, as you can imagine. And so I decided I would try. Um, well, I had been writing essays and articles, but I, I tried to write again. And so I wrote an article for Stateville Speaks, and it was basically just two paragraphs, a quick little riff uh, that the law should keep up with the technology. And if IBIS is being used by law enforcement to, you know, incriminate, then it should be used to exonerate. Bill Ryan put in Stateville Speaks. I also included a letter to him asking if he could give my idea to Springfield to get the law changed. As I mentioned earlier, the appellate court said the law would have to be amended. So when you know, at the time that I was in SEG, he was on this committee, HJR 80 committee in Springfield, and he gave Art Turner my idea. And my idea became a law signed into law by Blagojevich before he went to jail. And they afforded me this, this new gun testing. And then at that time, you know, now the lawyers, basically, they took the case. They had a winner. The law was on their side to get the ballistic testing. And Bill Ryan, just side note, I talked to him. I, I actually got him on, on record where he's like, you know, Bill, he's a hefty, heavy set white guy. He's like, he looks like Santa Claus. He's like, Patrick, you don't get it. I had a <laughs> table full of mail 
from Stateville. I just reached in a pile and pulled your letter out and you asked me to give the idea to Springfield. So obviously I didn't have any hand in it. It was completely fortuitous. Uh, some could call it a, a blessing or alignment or whatever. You know, it just, he was in the right place at the right time. I was in SAG at the right time to sit down and write an article that became a state law. But, you know, I think that's so important. All that research that you did and you knew that was the evidence against you. You said you never let go of that. When that cop told you that gun could be matched, you were like, okay, let's match it. (laughs) And, you you know, that's really important. Now, he may have had that thought or you came to him with it, but it takes making some noise. But wow, what serendipity. Yeah. That that happened, a a pile of letters. You can't quantify it. (laughs) Negroes in segregation in Stateville don't write articles that become state law. It just does not happen. I'm not a PAC. I'm not a powerful lobby. I'm a nobody buried under eight layers of rubble. I had natural life. I was done in the courts. I was done. It was over with. The anti-terrorism effective death penalty had sealed my all appeals. It was over with. I I had already filed two habeas corpuses. Probably five post-conviction petitions. You know, I had legal boxes that stand taller than I am, full of, of documents. Of the, but I knew they could tell me no all day long, but all I needed was one yes. You know, that's what we hang on to. We hang on to that yes. It is a long, grueling. I, I forgot the myth of the guy who has to push the boulder up the hill for all eternity, only for it to roll back down. But in our story, the boulder rolls down over us, flattens us into the pavement, and we have to somehow get up and push it again until we get it over the top of that hill. And so I take no credit for it. It is, it is the creator. It is uh, uh, fortuity. It is a modern day miracle. I never claimed to be anything. I ain't shit. You know, I'm just a guy from the ghetto, right? But my genetics and my perseverance, my drive and my innocence and my desire to get out for my kids I refuse to lay down in that fucking crypt. What type of testing does the uh, Illinois Post-Conviction Act include? Well, now it includes other forms of forensic testing as per my amendment. And so, you know, you could obviously DNA, but you could get fingerprint. It's various other forms of testing, forensic testing. You have crime scene reenactment. You have bullet trajectory. You have a lot of things. So, it's kind of open-ended. It's how a person applies it to their case and how it's argued. That's a that's a big deal. You know, we had a, a state's attorney, and honestly, he told us publicly, well, I was actually going back and forth with him on Facebook, <laughs> you know, which is crazy, right? Why was he talking to me on Facebook? But whatever. And he said... Uh, that testing, any DNA testing would not prove his innocence. As I read that post-conviction act, it doesn't have to prove your innocence. It has no. advanced your claim. And that's, that's it. So tell me a little bit more about that. I, like I, I just, I didn't understand that. And I, and I just thought, do you, you know, you're the state's attorney. Do you know the fucking law? Well, With the post-conviction petition uh, hearing act, it's kind of like if like a lawsuit, right? So when you file a complaint, all that's really needed is this bare bones allegation, right? So in you know in the post-conviction hearing act language, you know you got to make a credible claim, you know, of actual innocence when um, requesting forensic testing. But what you're what you're doing is just making a bare bones claim to get past that first stage where a lawyer can come and clean up, you know, the lay person's language and, and 
watch the claim and and get discovery if the judge will allow it. It's a mechanism to open the door. And I think also like with yours, you know, where they denied the denied the testing with IBIS, I don't understand how they could how they could assert in any way that well if the gun is still out there and still being used or has been used in other crimes that that does not advance a credible claim of actual innocence on Jamie's behalf because obviously he's locked the fuck up. Or and any any other uh the fingerprints. The yeah, you know in, the blood. Form of if there's a the DNA of an alternative suspect who said he was having Easter dinner with his mom and never went near the store, then, you know, there's an issue there, right? Yeah, there's a huge issue. And like you said earlier, how they withhold this evidence, you get 8,000 uh, pages. There was one guy that I was locked up with. And I said, well, are you sure you got everything? And he's like, I think I got everything. I said, well, you need to think about filing a Freedom of Information Action request or to get everything. And it turned out there was a ski mask with someone else's DNA on it. And here it is. Lo and behold, he proves his innocence. So they never tested it. So it's not in the prosecutor's interest politically to even entertain these type of because t- it's like the boogeyman's going to jump out and get them. In my case, there's literally text on prosecu- ex-prosecutor's phones oh my God, I knew this case was going to come back and get me because Patrick Persley's innocent with the air quotes. He went and got them big city attorneys. You know what I'm saying? So it's literally like a boogeyman in a closet just waiting to jump out and get them sooner or later. So they have to go on Facebook Live and, you know, uh, critique your argument, you know, and publicly try to throw shade on you and what you're saying because it scares them because these things can and do derail careers. The prosecutor that withheld that evidence and from 2017 to 2019 that uh, the mother made these statements to state's attorneys, uh, investigators, two, you know, twice, two different investigators over a year. You know, he got fired. You know, he got fired. My case is the only case where you see the defense putting a prosecutor on and then the, uh, another prosecutor higher up in the office, his boss, coming out and they're going against each other on the stand. Those are not good days for prosecutors. I understand it. I don't agree with it because your, your mantra is supposed to be public service, public interest, pursuit of truth and justice. But those things get lost quickly in the real world. For yes. I had attorneys... And, you know, I got a little bit of administrative law understanding and I'm fighting all the way from the circuit courts all the way up through the appellate courts about getting public information from Illinois State Police or the rules of the lab or how many complaints been filed against this expert. I can't even get have a hearing for administrative law judge, you know, and they use taxpayer money to brief this up, argue against me, and ultimately beat me simply because I didn't have a lawyer. You know, this public information. That's why that independent media is so important. It is so important to get the word out because there's people that care everywhere, right? You know, there's people that maintain the status quo everywhere. But there's also people with conscience that when they can actually get good and credible reporting on on mis- misconduct, they will abandon their previous held positions. Can you tell us more about the ballistic database? Like who manages it? How does it work? Well, from my understand, understanding, it was a company, it's an algorithm, so it, it's proprietary interest, and it's a company out of Canada. Basically, this software is installed, grants are were uh, given out to the states to install the software in their agencies and stuff like that. So, you know, it's this proprietary, it's just basically the algorithm. It runs and it has a score system. For quite a while, I gave it more import than it really deserved. It turns out that IBIS is not even, it's not even really evidence. It's just like a, 
a screening tool. It's not something they could give the jury the IBIS results. It's documentary hearsay. Right, but, uh, but it spits right. out potential matches. Yeah. And then, and then, then a, an, an examiner can Yeah, examiner look at has that. to look at. And that's that's where, see, like with mine, it got so convoluted, right? So, you know, like I was granted my certificate of innocence and then the state filed a motion to reconsider, which put my certificate of innocence on the back burner. And their basis was it came out in discovery or depositions that when they entered the ballistics into testing in the year 2015 or 2017, that it didn't compare it or match, you know, against itself. So for many years, I was walking around saying, well, it's got, you know, the bullets are no relation. The score system from 150 down to one, it was 1500 different weapons that had a closer result my gun didn't even score one well with this new what they just did right now they said they just updated it right the software and so now they're saying well my gun is one in 250 one in t- and then one is supposed to be like one in 15 or something like that so they try to they try to use this as a basis to say well had my experts known that it was not a zero match, but one in 250, would this have changed their opinion? Well, no, because my ballistic experts are the best in the world. Literally, Jenner and Block went and got John Murdoch, who works for a police department in California, and is the grandfather of modern-day ballistics. He tested the gun like eight different ways in high resolution. That's a game that is played where they'll do ballistic testing. Back then, they only did like 30% resolution. Well, in my case, John Murdoch did 150% power resolution. That takes some similarities and blows them up. And you can see, uh, it doesn't match. Now they're trying to back away from, first they were trying to back away from it. Now they're trying to run to it. They play fast and loose with it, but it all still comes down to, it's a preliminary screening tool. And an expert or experts have to actually look at this evidence themselves. Time and time again, they play fast and loose so much with things that don't fit into the picture. In my case, you got eyewitness that says, I'm not the killer. It's a 16-year-old white kid. And what he says, there's actually footprints in the snow that the police followed. But now that this serves my interest, this kid's crazy. He don't know what it, but if a 16-year-old white kid pointed his finger in my face at open court in 1993 and said Patrick Persley did it, we would not be having this conversation. Can you tell us how or if the bullets, because all we have are the bullets retrieved from the body. Do you think that they can be run in the ballistics? Of course, most of the time, a bullet is not that damaged. And even if they couldn't run it through IBIS, it does not mean they cannot be examined, re-examined, and, and um, you know, photos be, be taken, right? And then they, they isolate the parts of the bullet that is not damaged and then run that. You know, these are not big surfaces. In my case, once it came out that I just didn't do a match and my experts, my experts said doesn't match and their experts all changed their opinions. Well, the bullets don't match. We think the shell casing or shell casings don't match, but we think the bullets do. Once they did all this trading places, basically there was like one fragment that they couldn't use, but they are able to make molds of bullets now you know i forgot the little rubber type substance that they use and they're able to enhance it to such a degree that they can see these smaller spaces so when they had to change their position then the state's attorney in the 11th hour before my evidentiary hearing is now arguing that well the bullets went through a human's head so therefore it had blood tissue on it and therefore it corrupted the bullets what are you talking about? There's no evidence of corruption on the bullets. 
nor is there any evidence of bullets being corrupted by skin tissue and blood because historically you wash the bullets off and then you examine them. So there is no tissue on it. And they try to use, who was it? The guy from the Beatles that was shot, John Lennon case. And they stopped letting people right. see the bullets because they were afraid that the handling of the bullets was going to change uh, the ballistics. Well, did it change the ballistics? No, it didn't. It's just really every single nuance, every single conclusion, they must be boxed in, cornered until they have nowhere else to go. And then you get relief. It really is. Like in my case, once again, here it is. They made a mistake when they ran the IBIS testing. Now they're coming back in 2021 and saying, well, we made a mistake. We want to do over. And they had a press conference without the results. They went to court without the results. They asked for a six months continuance at my expense. You, you see what I'm saying? At my yeah. life's expense. Yeah. So it is literally, and the worst part by, I think you said you went through five prosecutors. So these yeah. prosecutors get younger and younger, right? Right. And and I'm getting older and older and Jamie's getting older and older. You see what I'm saying? You're fighting an office versus a man. And it just doesn't translate in time because the man passes away while the office continues. They have all the luxury of time and all the luxury of resources and all the ability to do deny, what's it called, prevarifications and circumvent facts and omit stuff. They can do all of that. And it's no one holds their political careers in jeopardy over wrongful convictions because we are deemed inconsequential. However, if the taxpayer really knew how much you were paying on it, you might yeah. have a different take on it. It really is about a sleeping public. It really is about media. Uh, you know, hey, well, uh, you know, Dorothy brought her dog to the studio today. I look yeah. at the news and I'm like, what are you talking about? Right. You don't want me right. the same five stories every day to control the narrative while people are dying in prison and your elected officials are, are not only not trying to seek justice, but they're actually trying to put bricks up over the door. I know that you do a lot of advocacy and that you have a lot of stuff going. Is there anything that you have going on right now? Um, any websites that you need to promote, anything we can do to help you, any fundraising for anything or cases uh, that you want to highlight? Um, thank you for the opportunity. First of all, first and foremost, support free Jamie Snow, right? That's always thing um, by me reading the case and being locked up with him as a person, I, I believe in, in his innocence. And um, also to you, I tip my hat to you. And um, in any future way I can help, please let me know. As far as me, myself, you always know, um, I am kidculture.org. I am kidculture.org. We just got some donations in. We're going to do a thousand dollar giveaway as you remember, since I've been out, you know, I've been doing these giveaways to at-risk teens. You know, our organization works to reduce gun and gang violence, promote higher education and empower, you know, at-risk youth. They are more, you know, very likely to fall into these types of circumstances later in life if we don't intervene in their lives while they're young. And you can follow me, Facebook, Instagram, free Patrick Persley or Patrick Anthony Persley. And I really um, thank you for helping us get the story out with my case. And I, I'm very much at your service to help you get the story out about James. I have to uh, add that I Am Kid Culture has been going on for a very long time. And Patrick, <laughs> Patrick started that program in prison and uh, he actually put out curriculum for at-risk youth that was picked up and did a lot of promotion during that years before I even came along. Um, yeah, since about 2005, 2006, yeah. we've had professors get out the game, peace circles, high schools, college kids, middle schools, even the ready program as far down here as Champaign, where I'm at now, 
we're retooling it. I got out on pretrial. Everybody was telling me just get a job. I was like, this is my job. <laughs> this is my job. And it is, it is what I do fundraise and try to give back in a, a way that actually help helps the hood helps. So we're going to update the site. We still got visitors. We had 67 visitors to the site and I haven't changed the website since last year. So when we change the site and put the new contest on there, we'll be good to go for back to school season. Personally, I think it's awesome that Patrick's going to have to, you know, having to deal with the promotions that he does. <laughs> me and Michelle used to have to deal with that shit. <laughs> yeah, it's not like, easy because you never know Patrick, what you're going to get. We can't just do that. He's like, yeah, you can. <laughs> I promise you, if there's a way to do it, Patrick knows. And that guy knew more about social media from prison than I did out here because <laughs> he got books and he studied it and he knew. So, uh, you know, Thank he's you. an amazing, amazing advocate. He, uh, you know, I know he doesn't take credit for the law that was passed in Illinois, but it, it's an amazing thing that that was added. And that was, you know, with his persistence, it came from him. And he's always done everything he could to uh, help us and Jamie, in Jamie's case. And we really appreciate Patrick's help. And Michelle, too, we love you. We cried on each other's shoulders 10,000 times. So I love you, Michelle. Thank you so much. We love you too. And I appreciate you. And free Jamie Snow. In this episode, we heard from Patrick Pursley, an Illinois exoneree who fought from behind the prison walls for 27 years to prove his innocence through ballistics testing. Patrick set the course in motion to include ballistics testing in the Illinois Post-Conviction Act. And this case was the first ruling in the United States allowing post-conviction ballistics testing. Patrick and Jamie were friends while in Stateville, and he understands all too well what it's like to spend decades fighting for testing from behind bars. If you have any information that may help Jamie, please call the tip line at 888-710-SNOW. There is a $10,000 reward for any information leading to a new trial or the exoneration of Jamie Snow. The tip line is free and confidential. We know for certain that the bullets retrieved from Bill Little's body were obtained, loaded, and used to murder Bill. In part two of the ballistics episodes, we will review the ballistics evidence in Jamie's case. What testing can be done in his case? Why does McLean County continue to refuse to test the physical evidence? That's next time on Snow Files.